On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents, we do our own stunts. We're creeping ever closer to Jackie Chan's breakout role with 1978's Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin. <laughs> Stunts, a chronological look at the life and work of martial arts superstar Jackie Chan. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me is the world's deadliest man, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm just thinking about how hard it would be to be a podcaster if you had Tourette's. Is that something that you do think about? Honestly, I mean, th- there's nothing funny about Tourette's. No, anymore. not at all. Um, I was Well, that's the thing. In popular media, Tourette's is someone just yelling curses randomly. And it's so much more traumatic than that. Yes. Um, and I've only learned that through TikTok. There are a number of TikTok mm-hmm. creators who have Tourette's and talk about what it's like and the anxiety of it. And there's a lot of it is about lack of control. And I was thinking about when you were doing your intro, how hard it is for me as a person to not – not even like in a funny way. Like, yeah, it would be hilarious if while you were talking I made a noise and messed you up and we had to start over. <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm all about fucking with you. Sure. No, what I mean is – it's hard for me to just try not to make any noise because you're on such a roll. And then I thought the anxiety, part of what Tourette's is, is the anxiety of having Tourette's. Is that feeling mm-hmm. of trying not to do the thing that you know you're going to do. And that's like, that is horrifying. And then I thought, man, I, you know, I, I guess you would just assume that if you have Tourette's, then you're not performing anything but that's not true right at least not on tiktok right and so like i just think about that anxiety of like if you're if you're in that situation wondering about what you're going to do or how you're going to perform just just came into my head that's all no no it's actually kind of an interesting thing to bring up you might know that in the the before times the before covid times (laughs) i worked at a university days (laughs) <laughs> That's right. I worked at a university, and I used to provide kind of support services for students with accessibility issues. So I used to sit in on a lot of classes, and one of the classes I was sitting in once had a student with Tourette's syndrome, and she wanted to do, and quite rightfully, a presentation to the class. And she's like, she told everyone ahead of time, and this is one of the things that I've seen on TikTok with the in regarding people with Tourette's. It's like they have to announce it a lot of times just to explain it to people because they most people's only – uh, experience with it are through movies and television, which tend to make it very comical. And so, so she did this presentation to the class. But at some point, and maybe it's because of what you were just saying and being like very in your head about it, outside of the the the, the syndrome itself, she had to stop. And it was so heartbreaking to see someone try so hard to get through this thing. And then she had to leave the room, and she never came back to the class. I felt so bad for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, this isn't a, a pity party when it comes to Tourette's. It's right. just, I, th- I think it's something that people don't consider or take seriously. And especially because since it comes along sometimes with the person saying really terrible things, that that it's hard not to even laugh or smile uh, out of the uncomfortableness of it. But it's uh, right. it's, it's really quite something. Yeah, I, I there was a, a video of a, um, a dude took of him, tr- you know, tr- he's trying to hold his niece. His yeah. newborn niece and and the anxiety of that and it'd be easy to focus on the language, but the language isn't really the point, right? 
right. It's just an expression of this other sort of anxiety point, you know? Yeah. Not that that relates to our movie today, per se, but it was just something on my mind because I think um, for all of us, managing some amount of anxiety is like part of doing anything, you know? Um, and and I, I, I don't know. I feel a lot of, uh, a lot of empathy for, for that because, as you said, in popular media, it's just a fucking joke, and that doesn't yeah. seem very fair. Now, speaking of anxiety, Liam, one of the things about the show, We Do Our Own Stunts, this podcast about Jackie Chan, is that I've had a little anxiety about you. Oh, because, yeah? Yeah, because I worry that you have not been enjoying yourself properly on this show. Because you went into, you're like, Doug, I think a Jackie Chan podcast would be fun. And I'm like, you're right, Liam. Let's do it chronologically. And you're like, huh? Yeah, I guess. And then we start doing it. And you're like, hey, how come these movies are so bad? <laughs> And I, I mean, I will uh, let me just own for the audience that what Doug is saying is very true. I had I had misgivings about doing this chronologically. I suggested at first that we jump around a little bit, and it was specifically for the reason that people know if they've been listening to this show. I knew there was a series of early films that I would not enjoy as much as some of his more well-known performances but you were pretty adamant that we should do it this way and that's right i both hate that and appreciate <laughs> it at the same time and i feel comfortable i'm not even like joking when i say that because i do think in a historical sense it was probably the right way to do it but the experience has not been fun i mean i think it has been fun uh simply because we're watching well, not wrong. great movies you're sometimes <laughs> look Podcasting about only great films, it's probably would be okay, but it's not as interesting to me. We're learning a story here. We're learning the story of Jackie Chan, and we're also learning how, when you watch these things together, how that story deviates from the public story with the idea that he's being made the new Bruce Lee when these films don't really uh, replicate kind of the formula of Bruce Lee at all. And, the, the, you know, the idea that all these films, these low-way films, are not good or are very exploitative as opposed to what we're finding, which is that, yeah, some of them are not very good, but there are moments of greatness in lots of them. And in the example of the movie that we're going to talk about today, an actual, what I would say, very good movie. Well, I just think in your defense of this decision you made, which was, I think, probably academically the right decision, but it really showed no concern for my well-being. Or an um, audience, by the way, because we're trying to build an audience right. on the show. And they, they and couldn't then possibly care. Right. We were probably going to be like, the, when we finally hit Police Story, they're like, hey, there's this podcast about Jackie Chan. It's like, yeah, we're like 15, 20 episodes Yeah, in. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but but what, I'm, what I was going to say is, I think in an effort to defend that decision, you're lumping this movie in with anything we've talked about before now. Whereas I would describe this movie as a radical break from the theme of this show <laughs> and a sudden eruption of joy into a uh, morass of despair. Well, I was also, because I have not seen this film before, and I had seen some of the previous ones that we've covered, uh, I was under the impression that really we were just trying to get through this. We were trying to get through Magnificent Bodyguards so we could get to Snake in the Eagle's Shadow, the movie that's going to make Liam happy. So I was very pleased that we didn't have to wait so long, that there's something here to make Liam happy. And I hope you appreciate how concerned I am with your happiness. I mean, I, I, I do appreciate that. I will say... 
that if I am unhappy, it is your fault. So your concern is just the Uh concern of someone who's done something wrong and now is worried about repercussions of that mistake. It's not wrong because you agreed (laughs) willingly. It's not like I forced you to do it. And if you had pushed back on this concept, it's like, Doug, I just want to watch the best Jackie Chan movies. And like, as to you be came fair, back- I didn't mm-hmm. want to just watch the best. I wanted to jump around and include lots of movies I hadn't seen before because I, I think, and we're going to find out over time, but I think there's going to be movies in the solidly strongly Jackie Chan period, right? Where he right. is a lot more in control of his material that I also have not seen. I don't think I'm an ex- I mean, to be fair, it is strange to say, I've only seen 11 Jackie Chan movies. I can't be an expert <laughs> on Jackie Chan. But I think that's true. I think there are yeah. a lot of people out there who, who've actually seen a huge chunk of this man's material but have not seen the majority of his work because he's been in so many movies, right? And yeah. so that's what I was suggesting is like, let's jump around. Let's do something that we know is great and then something that we don't know if it's great or not and sort of alternate back and forth. But, you know, you wanted to go historical. And, again, as much as I want to bust you on this <laughs> because I don't want to let you off the hook about how difficult this has been, on the other hand, you're probably right. I think we're 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 offering our audience a much more complete vision of his life and career than we would if we just jumped from, you know, some bullshit like Shanghai Noon back to Shaolin Wooden Men. I think that doesn't give people the experience that they're getting by a more chronological uh, journey. It's also, Liam, like sex. Right, we're this is Stop. foreplay. Stop, no, right? we're all and we're leading into. Something. If the foreplay was this bad, I wouldn't <laughs> stick around for the sex. <laughs> Liam, we are here to talk about Snake and Crane: Arts of Shaolin. Is this a movie that you had any awareness of previous to watching it for this episode? No, and I think that's part of why, and you know, a little bit of a spoiler, uh, uh, but you've already hinted at it that we're both pretty excited to talk about this movie because I really thought I had at least heard of a lot of his like very good movies you know and this is maybe i mean i guess we'll we'll find out more as we go on but this is maybe the best not jackie chan jackie chan movie like if we think of (laughs) there being a genre of jackie chan movie in which jackie chan is not just the star but he is sort of the creative force right Mm -hmm. and then there are other movies that feature jackie chan prominently but he is not the creative force this might be one of the best at least top five where he is the star but not the primary creative force because there's a lot of of who we of what we love about him in this film but there's also a lot of stuff that I like from other kinds of kung fu movies that I don't necessarily associate with Jackie Chan you know this is a sort of weirdly ensemble piece where there are all these different sure. types of characters and different elements and whatever and that you know that world is not one I associate Jackie Chan with that one that feels very uh, related to the original Shaw Brothers sort of feel, you know? Um, right. And yet, this is that, and it is awesome. And I, I really appreciate that. And it makes me feel like, why haven't more people been talking about this movie as much as, you know, Ar- you know, Armor of the Gods or whatever else? Well, I do think its reputation is increasing, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that this movie and several of these low movies are now available in nice-looking you know, subtitled versions that are a little bit more complete, that feel like more like a real movie. And I think part of the reputation that a lot of the, these movies have as kind of low rent uh, have to do with the the stated story of Jackie Chan and Lo Wei having a lot of issues, him kind of 
for years afterwards saying a lot of these movies are not good. And so they they basically the reputation preceded them, but now, you know, companies like 88 Films are putting out these really high-quality versions of these movies with special features and and looking kind of really polished and you get a sense it's like yeah, these are comparable in terms of production quality to a lot of the martial arts movies that were coming out at that time period. And they do have things to recommend them, if only for the moments of weirdness that we've seen in some of the movies previously. And in a movie like this, at more than just a few hints at what was to come for Jackie Chan's career. I want to start today, as I usually do, Liam, with Jackie Chan's words from his uh, autobiography, I Am Jackie Chan. He wrote, The next project I was put on, Snake and Crane, Arts of Shaolin, was something of a relief. Every film in which I had to play a dark and brooding hero was turning into a disaster, so I asked Willie to see whether he'd be able to convince Lowe to give me a lighter role to play. Snake and Crane Arts wasn't exactly a comedy, but my character, a lone wandering warrior who was the owner of an ancient martial arts scroll containing the secrets of a long-dead group of masters, at least gets the chance to show some sarcastic humor. I was also able to play with the action a little bit, adding intricate fights with traditional Shaolin weapons, as well as a somewhat less traditional fight in which I used my female co-star as a weapon. Despite the increased freedom I felt while doing Snake and Crane Arts, I still felt trapped by Lowe's demands. He hated anything different or original, and he still believed that he could turn me into another Bruce Lee. Every time I tried to lighten up the set, making jokes or doing acrobatic stunts, he became enraged, seeing my attempts at humor as a personal mockery of him. To tell you the truth, joking around was the only way I could relieve my growing bitterness. I was never going to be Bruce, and everyone seemed to know it but Lowe. Reading that, or hearing that, Liam, any thoughts about what where Jackie's head was at at this time, or what his perspective was on this movie? I think he's realizing that he is a f- more complete artist than what he's being given credit for. Like, Low Wei seems to be treating him like a tool. Uh, not in the in the euphemism for a dick way, but a tool in, <laughs> in, the, in like a... Like a useful object, right? Well, I a need dick you is, to a do... dick isn't a useful object. You, but you know what I mean. Like he's not treating him like a tool. Like he's a jerk off. He's right. treating him like a tool. <laughs> like I need to accomplish this thing, and you're just part of the way I'm accomplishing this. Well, that doesn't respect his originality, his creativity. You know what I mean? And uh, again, I, I of course, as any artist does, he probably overestimates how great all of his ideas were. He was young enough that I'm sure some of those ideas were dumb. And eventually we're going to get to some of his greatest movies and there'll probably be things in them where we go, oh, that was kind of silly. You know, like that's inevitable. But the reality is there's a lot of potential there for something and no one, or at least the person with the power, isn't interested in that potential. He's just interested in getting the product out that he thinks it should be, you know? And that has to be unbelievably frustrating for someone as creative as Jackie Chan. What's kind of interesting to think about is what if instead of starting off with New Fist of Fury, if sure. Lo Wei started off with this film, Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin, which better show off Jackie as a performer, as as even an actor, and as a character that more closely resembles the dominant figure of Bruce Lee while still having a bit of humor in it and, again, a, a much more acrobatic style of kung fu? And whether that could have been successful if marketed properly compared to something like New Fist of Fury, where it's just him kind of learning the ropes all the way through and only being able to show what he can do in like the final 10 minutes. Well, the question I have, though, is how did this movie do? Do we have a badly? Yeah, we know that it was a big bomb. The, the, The excuse for that, and it might be a perfectly reasonable one, was that it was marketed poorly. But also, you know, maybe at this point. 
this was a lot of films that he's made for low A at this point. And if they don't hit quickly, maybe that's just, they just give up on them right away. But it is surprising that this movie didn't do well because there's a lot here that we would see in the next like year, year and a half of Jackie Chan's career that would be, um, that were elements that would be very successful in his movies. It's strange because it's not just a solid Jackie Chan movie. We talked about this a little bit, but it's pretty good for any movies of the era. Like, yeah. I think this holds up to let's if we made a list of the kung fu movies that came out the year that this came out. I bet this holds let's up to most it. of them. No, I'd rather not. <laughs> uh, certainly, the uh, the mire of Bruce Poitation efforts around uh, even even up to nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, this one stacks up very well against that. Not that this would be fit into that category. It is interesting that despite. Uh, multiple places I read that this is one of Jackie Chan's favorite of his own movies, certainly from this period, but generally overall as well, that in his recent autobiography, Never Grow Up, he doesn't mention it really at all. It's just kind of uh, listed in terms of the films that he made for Low Way. And that's something that we're kind of, uh, that's why I'm glad to be able to go back to that earlier book because he gives a lot more detail about this part of his career. I guess, uh, you know, it, there's only so much space that you have. And now that Jackie Chan is such a huge, not just kind of international public figure, but still, you know, very, very famous in the West. People want to hear about his Hollywood period, which for me is his least interesting period. Yeah, everyone wants to hear about, like, you know, Shanghai Noon and whatever The tuxedo. Else. The tuxedo, all this stuff that, like, <laughs> this, is the, this is what's going to be the curse of this podcast, right? Is that it's definitely a U-shape. You know, we're starting yeah. at the bottom. We're going to work our way up. And then it'll be another slow descent. Yeah, well, it's it again. There, there, there'll be peaks and valleys, just like there have been in this other part of the U. So it's less a U and more like. <laughs> Stop! Don't even try. <laughs> a, a shape that doesn't resemble a letter at all. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Doug. That's this is helpful. a. Here's another quote from Jackie Chan inside the Dragon, uh, written by Clyde Gentry the Third. Sporting a Shaw Brothers like ponytail, Chan made his dream project: Snake and Crane, Arts of Shaolin. Like most kung fu films, the opening credits show off the star's talent, and Chan puts on an incredible show using a spear, broadsword, and tanfa. Chan plays a lone kung fu expert roaming the countryside in possession of a book that contains the secret of the snake and crane arts. Chan spouts off plentiful wisecracks and must champion numerous entities wishing to get their hands on the book. He eventually teams up with a tomboy who has her own idea of how the book should be used, and together they must battle their way to the ending, which unfolds the mystery of the book and its deceased writers. This film contains the best fight choreography before Chan's seasonal films, and the buddy concept works quite well amid the usual low-way production values. Whatever Chan's minor deficiencies in the martial arts department, he was formally trained in the use of classical Chinese weapons, a staple of Cantonese opera, and was able to put these abilities to good use. Despite the energy put into the film, it met with dismal returns at the box office due to a lack of advertising. I mean, I think a pretty good summary of the, uh, the qualities that this movie brings to the table. We're going to talk about some of those things that it, that that quote brings up, including the opening credits, which are very impressive, and Jackie Chan's use of weapons, which we haven't seen a lot of so far. Uh, anything of note from from what I just read, Liam? No, not particularly. You got nothing to say? I mean, not till we get into the movie. Well, I tell you what, because you're so anxious to go do that, let's take <laughs> a let's take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about Snake and Crane: Arts of Shaolin. ジャッキーさん、今のご気分はもう今夜は最高。<音楽> 
満載お笑い万歳ジャッキー・チェーンの邪覚発見
using everyday objects as part of his martial arts. That's very his thing, sort of mm-hmm. uh, being kind of goofy. A lot of times he's embarrassing his opponent if they're right. if they're not better than him. Then he's not just fighting them; he's making them look silly. Um, even his the tone of his character, uh, a lot of his swagger, you know, he he somehow manages to be smarter than everyone, but also feel like a bit of a doofus. You know what sure. I mean? Mm-hmm. That's very much his style. Uh, but also, it's just a solid martial arts movie. A- again, it it'd be hard to compare it to something like Eight Diagram Pole Fighter or Thirty Six Chambers of Shaolin movies that sort of tower above the genre. But right. if you're if you're interested in the genre, it goes beyond t-shirt movies into some of the deeper cuts this holds up very well against any number of of movies of the period um and has some of my favorite elements which is like weird side characters that have a specialty you know like Mm -hmm. oddball lou like fucking yes you know old man (laughs) beggar i'm in a woman who fights with a goddamn flute like anytime it's like oh she's a woman so she only has a flute but she's badass with the flute. I yeah. love that shit. I love the weird thing where it's like we have to give the women uh, sexist weapons, but then they also have to be badass at those weapons. <laughs> I, I just something about that weird combo. I kind of love. I don't know. There's just a lot to enjoy about this film. Um, it's very sort of. It, it could be weird for someone if you don't know anything about this. These sorts of movies, you know, his, his the fact that our hero is mildly sexist might be <laughs> off putting. Um, some of the gender combo in general might be off putting. But if you just sort of take it as like this is a, about a specific period of time, and um, and focus more on the like honestly stellar martial arts action. Like I, I guess it's not you know mind bendingly awesome, you know, and it certainly doesn't have. Jackie Chan running down the side of a skyscraper level of stunts, but <laughs> it's still very impressive and very fun. And the plot kind of knows what it is. It doesn't have to make total sense. It just has to be a little mysterious and a little confusing. And then it reveals itself at the end and it culminates in a big old fight scene. That's really <laughs> all you need, right? It's 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 a simple genre to appreciate, you know? And for me, I'm a, an appreciator of the whole genre, you know? There are folks, you know, when I think about some Jackie Chan fans, they make me think about, um, you know, the the sort of fat records fans who like think like the best punk band ever is No Effects, but like <laughs> they can't listen to any punk before No Effects because it doesn't sound like No Effects. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm like a, an actual appreciator of the whole genre of martial arts, and that doesn't mean I look at all. Like, there are a lot of movies that are terrible, and many of which we've covered on this show, but uh, <laughs> but uh. But if if it's hitting the notes, it's hitting the notes, man. And this movie does that. It, it doesn't transcend uh, right. that genre, but it plays all the notes very well. And is I would say, you know, I, I want to ramble on about it because it is the first movie in our in the history of this particular Jackie Chan show where I feel like I could un unapologetically recommend it to everyone. You right. know what I mean? To anyone who likes these kinds of movies. I do think that the plot gets a little overstuffed, uh, probably at the sure. midway point, especially sure. when they sideline Jackie Chan's character for a while, simply because nobody is as interesting to watch physically 
as he is in the movie. But one of the things that this movie gets right that a lot of the movies that we've talked about so far haven't is that there's a lot of action in it, and the action is very good. And also, it starts off with action, and we see Jackie Chan dominate in that action. And I know that sounds kind of strange because the classic Jackie Chan martial arts movies that we're going to be talking about, almost all of them involve him having to learn to fight, right? That at first he's not a great fighter and then he's taught something. But usually, even in those movies, he doesn't start from zero. He's, He's still starting from having, usually he dominates like people in his general circle, but then he encounters someone that he just cannot fight at all and then has to learn skills in order to fight that person or those people. And here we finally see him in a character that is just absolutely demolishing people around him. And because he has that freedom to do that, he can be a little more creative in the ways that he is dominating them. And that's what makes some of these uh, early sequences fun. There is a, (laughs) classically, in a lot of Jackie Chan movies, there are fights that take place in restaurants, and not just in Jackie Chan movies, in Golden Harvest movies that we're going to be, maybe just actually a lot of the martial arts movies of this period feature that. There is a superior uh, restaurant fight scene in this movie, a very, very good one. Uh, So I think it's clear from what we've talked about so far, would you agree? This is the best of the Jackie Chan movies that we've watched so far. This is the high point. It's it's not even a fair comparison. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a gulf between this movie and the other movies. And, you know, I'll probably feel that way when comparing this movie to some of the other later movies that appeal to me even more because uh, there is something about a style that he owns later that really tickles me and is really great. But I just, uh, for where we're at right now, this is a massive leap forward. What do you think about the humor in this movie? Now, it isn't funny like something like Drunken Master is, where it's really kind of a kung fu comedy, but there is a good good chunk of humor. And especially when it comes to the supporting characters here, we have very comedic supporting characters. Does the humor kind of resemble what you are expecting going forward? Or is this kind of just skirting the edge of that? I would say just skirting the edge. It's not near... I mean... Here's the thing. It's not self-serious. Like, a lot of the movies we've covered so far are very serious. Yeah. So, compared to those movies, it's like this movie is like a laugh riot. But in reality, Jackie Chan, when he gets into his almost Buster Keaton-style slapsticky stuff, right? Th- some of that stuff is, like, mind-bendingly funny. Just, oh, I can't believe he even thought of doing that sort sure. of jokes. This doesn't have that. But it is fun, and even its efforts to be funny, even if all the jokes don't land, it's still fun to see the effort, to see, hey, we're having fun here, which is like not the theme we've had so far. Yeah. I, I For me, I think the, the line between these things is Jackie Chan here is very dominant. So when someone punches him in the face, he's not rubbing his face and like, oh, that hurts. Like, that's kind of the defining aspect to me of who Jackie Chan becomes as someone who shows a lot of the pain, even if he is incredibly good at coming back from that pain. And it's funny to say that. It's like, oh, for me, the humor is the pain. But for me, that kind of goes hand in hand for a lot of his films going forward. I think that's fair that that he a lot of the slapstick is about that or or other characters um, or silly things happen during a fight. You know, a fight, like a a lot of his later movies, the fight is very serious, but then something happens that's really goofy and you just have a moment to laugh at that thing. Um, There's not as much of that going on, but his character is funny and he makes some funny jokes and he has a bit of an attitude and he does embarrass not everyone he fights, but some of the people he fights, he makes (laughs) them look really stupid. And that is part of the fun. 
So uh, you mentioned some of the supporting characters uh, in this film. There are a lot of kind of very unique ones. Any favorites for you? Jackie Chan does dominate a lot of the screen time. But like I said, at about the halfway point, he's basically been injured. There's a lot of people fighting on his behalf. Uh, who else did you like in this movie? I love the old man beggar and his friend, uh, Oddball Lou. They're not always the most physically interesting, but they just have a... I like that character, that idea that there's a whole realm of street people who are respectable because if they band together, they can make your life bad. Yeah, they're basically unionized beggars, right? Yeah, and, but that there's also a martial arts to that. Like, of course, yeah. they can fight too. Um, I liked the woman whose name I forget uh, with the flute. She was a leader of her own clan. She's tough. I, I thought her sidekick was a little corny, like he's a little predictable. But she, a lot of her fighting style I liked. I liked the way she used the flute. I, I thought she, all of that. She, she's Tang Pinger in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought she was great. Yeah, because like that's the name of the clan is the Tang Clan. Yeah. Um, Did you like it when Jackie Chan told her to smile more because she'd look more pretty? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what's funny is I, I could waste time being offended by all that, but – Part of his character, right, is that yes. he is – I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I don't feel bad about it. He's purposefully pissing people off. He's trying yeah, to get – absolutely. He's trying to get the guy he's looking for, the murderer, to reveal himself. And in order to do that, he's got to fight a lot of fucking people. And so he keeps being a dick – on purpose. And sure, that kind of undercuts some of the humor later when it's revealed. Maybe he's not quite as much of a dick as he's made himself out to be. That he's just doing that to piss people off. But that's, I don't know, I thought that was part of the fun. So, like, when he said it, it was, you know, it's kind of fucked up. But, you know, he's pissing, he's going around, you know, metaphorically waving his dick around because he's trying to get the person he's looking for to reveal themselves. What do you think about this concept, and we see this in a lot of martial arts movies, of a guide or a book that explains a certain kung fu technique? It might not go in this case where uh, I like the kind of general concept of this movie, which is that Jackie Chan's character has this guide. Everyone wants it because they know it's so dominant. So they're going to attack him specifically to get it. Like you said, he's actually uh, causing that to happen. But what do you think about that idea of just like, if I had this book, I could learn from these directions how to do this great kung fu technique. I mean, it, uh, as someone who has purchased books called The Secret Death Touch of Kung Fu <laughs> and things like that, I love this idea. And, and, you know, I've tried secret death touches on people and they don't work. So, um, you know, I, I know that that's not a real thing. But, but you know, I, I do think I am not the obviously the cultural commentator, let alone sociologist, to, to write this. But I would love someone to spend some time thinking about how the mythology of kung fu films and probably not just films right stories books whatever other media it was this sort of mythology was present is a direct response to colonialism you know what sure. i mean mm -hmm. i mean i wonder to some extent you know in a movie like this where the whole countryside is being you know run by various gangs and bandits right sure. how much of that is influenced by actual chinese history you know there's yeah. a there's a big gap in chinese history between the fall of the empire and the rise of the democratic you know folks before mao takes over where there's just warlords everywhere and like that history is not classic chinese history but when you read about that history it's like wow this sounds like a kung fu movie only they have guns and aren't kung fu fighting and so i wonder to what extent these films are influenced by the culture and history of what's going on and as as someone outside of that i don't always get the resonances there because i don't think it's direct like sometimes it is direct like this is based on a real 
uh, event that we learn about in our culture. But a lot of times when people are making art, they're they're influenced by things going on, but they're not directly reflecting them. They're sort of they're sort of taking pieces and putting them together in a new way. So like in what ways is this idea that there's secret knowledge that could be lost that maybe also could be found a response to colonialism, a response to, you know, uh, uh, explorers taking gunpowder away and coming back with guns, you right. know, like that's that wasn't a fun experience. If people don't know the history of colonialism in the East, uh, Europeans coming back with guns and cannons was like a bit of a bummer for everybody, you know. And so, uh, you know, I wonder to what extent this idea that, like, yeah, if we find this ancient tome then we would learn the secrets of the body in such a way that we would be dominant. Like what, what is, what is that about? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I would love someone who is far more knowledgeable than I to sort of ponder that as a, as a cultural phenomenon. Well, it's something we'll probably have to come back to uh, later because it's not as if there were not Kung Fu movies that contemporously engage with those kind of ideas. I mean, Bruce yeah. Lee movies up to this point had done so directly, and we'll see that in later Jackie Chan movies, including Drunken yep. Master 2, yeah. um, which which take on more like a, a 1940s, 1950s style colonialism and what that looked like at that time period. But it's something we'll talk about, I'm sure, later. I did want to briefly bring up Gem Ching Lan's performance in this. She plays sort of, I mean, as, as we've already mentioned, like a tomboy performance, and it's even kind of more than that. When Jackie Chan's character first encounters her, uh, she's dressed as a boy and as a kind of a beggar on the street. And he only later finds out that she is a woman. And he actually has some really, uh, from the perspective of 2021, some really unpleasant things to say after Correct. he discovers that. Uh, but but I really find that character interesting in that she is not played as kind of stereotypically as we've seen in a lot of the movies so far, where she does have kind of a rougher edge to her. And uh, even though I don't think her martial arts prowess that on display here is necessarily that impressive, I do find the character kind of unique, especially because that, that sort of trope of the woman who is only taken seriously when dressed as a man is something that we will see a few more times going forward. Well, yeah, and to what extent are all these things influenced by Mulan, right? Like, Of course. For a lot of people, Mulan is a Disney cartoon, but it's actually one of the oldest stories in that culture. And so it's like, it, it, how often has the resonance of that very important legend sort of played out in other narratives? I've, I've read, and I don't know if this is it's legitimate at all, but I've read in the last couple of years some people's interpretation that the story of Mulan is actually meant to be a mockery of the idea that people have taken very seriously from it. And I don't know if that's, again, true or not. Maybe I shouldn't even be talking about it without more knowledge on this. No, subject. I heard the but, same thing in my East Asian history class in college that some people, I mean, I don't know that it is proven one way or the other, but that some scholars consider the whole thing to be a joke. That right. it's supposed to be funny that she does all this stuff. And I, you know, who knows? I mean, it, talk about reaching into the past to interpret. I mean, I think we talked about that on this very show because mm -hmm. that was the first time I brought up my very tired theory of the Cosby sweater. You know, <laughs> that like at a certain point, the thing loses some of its resonance and we don't know what it means anymore. Well, or maybe it's just that the meaning evolves and changes and that it doesn't also really. True. Yeah, right. Because the source material doesn't matter as much as its resonance in culture right so if people take it seriously and its interpretation modern 
wise is that it is serious, then that it actually matters more than if people at the contemporary time didn't take it seriously. This is the this is like the blood is thicker than water, right? Right, right. That that means it, that that the original phrase means exactly the opposite of what we all say. It means. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, Liam, let's talk about the action in this film. I do think it's actually the highlight of the movie overall are the action sequences. We do see a style of kung fu that is much more in line with the Jackie Chan films that we kind of expect to see and what we'll see in the next uh, few films going forward over the, the following decade. Um, the movie starts with a kind of exhibition, which we do see in a lot of martial arts movies of this time period. It does remind me a lot of the very beginning of, uh, of the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, where you see Gordon Liu do that exhibition of different... Uh, different weapons in front of a colored background. Here we see Jackie Chan do the very same thing in front of a red background. What did you think of kind of this five-minute martial arts exhibition to start off this movie? I mean, I thought it was awesome, but I was definitely thinking, yeah, I've also seen 36 Chambers of Shaolin. <laughs> like, it, it kind of reminded me that this is a genre in which trying to parse between homage and... Uh, plagiarism is like a waste of time you know what i mean like anything that does well influences what comes after it so sure. spending time being like well is this more of an homage or is it like just borrowing from it or did it did it just become a trend and like everyone whatever it's just a waste of time it's really just like okay this is what's happening is it cool it was pretty freaking cool and it, it i think it kind of sets the theme of his character as being dominant and impressive and sort of right. coming into this thing right away as like the man, you know? But also, that also goes back to what I was saying before. Like if you wanted to show off Jackie Chan, which again is supposed to be what Lo Wei is doing here. Yeah. Well, this is a good way to do it. Starting off your movie with just him showing off all of these amazing acrobatic things that he can do and his right. prowess with these weapons. And like this is the way to kind of get him over, so to speak, with the martial arts audiences who are looking for a new star to connect themselves with. This feels like a good way of doing it, but we haven't really seen it up until this kind of later era Lo Wei movie. I mean, I don't know if we're getting into desperate territory when it comes to Lo Wei. It's like, I got to throw everything at the wall. I got to get this guy famous. Or if it's just like, well, I mean, let's just see what, what, what we can do and get as much out of him as possible. But here, it feels like it's trying to introduce a star as opposed to the films that we've seen so far. I agree. It, it definitely feels more like a, look how awesome this, this dude is, which a lot of these other movies didn't seem as focused on. Now, I have a list of some of the fights here. I don't want to go through them one by one. I want to get your take first, Liam. What was your favorite fight sequence in the film? That's a good question, actually. I, I really the, – the you have it listed here. Sure. Uh, I think the, the restaurant it, – it's the, the here's the thing about that restaurant fight. It was the first time and, – and to be fair, there's a couple fights in the same restaurant. So, so whatever. Sure. But That's the, right. the restaurant fight was the first time that I feel like we've seen Jackie Chan do things that I was like – Oh, there he is. There's Jackie Chan. There mm -hmm. he is. That that in and of itself made it thrilling. Um, I actually appreciate some of the other fights, uh, even some of the ones that don't have Jackie Chan in them, which is is interesting to say. But sure, I I kind of like when he's in prison and they're all fighting outside. I kind of like that fight, especially the whole uh, uh, oddball Liu is actually trying to avoid the head of yeah. the. Whatever it is, the what's the fort, the flag monkey fort or something like I that. Can't, I can't remember, but the big baddie, so to speak. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I lo I love that. Um, and I I really liked uh the uh fight 
so these characters weren't there very long, but it's the one gang that turns out to be the actual big. There's a lot of characters that seem like maybe bad guys that end up becoming allies, right? Sure. But there's right. one guy that turns out to be the big bad, and that gang has like different divisions. And yeah. so the they call them the fragrance division, but I think that was a euphemism for the prostitution division. <laughs> um, Though the fragrance aspect of it is important because yes. that's how yeah Jackie yes. discovers that the person he encounters is not actually the leader. Well, and, 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 and it's pretty clear that though their role might be sex work, that doesn't make them not kung fu artists because as soon no. as he rejects their offer, Offers of sex, they then try to kill him, and it's awesome. The combo of the two of them fighting him, especially because yes. he's trying. I mean, it's a little sexist because he spends a lot of time smacking them on the butt, but um, but the idea that they're both coming at him, some of the combos they pull while fighting him are like super cool. And it, yeah. it was just one of those opportunities for kung fu. You know, there's a lot of these films where the fighting looks. Maybe not quite real, but impressive in a way that maybe real fighting could be. But a lot of times the fighting goes into ridiculous choreography that is cannot possibly be real. But that doesn't make <laughs> it less fun. When they're sliding on when they're fighting and he's fighting off the one woman while the other one is on the ground trying to punch him in the nards, that was the best. And that's not real. That would never happen in a real fight. Who cares? It's so cool. I just I loved that whole part and there's a really revealing character moment there when a man jumps in to save him and just murders everyone i was just gonna say that was the first sign that that dude was probably not cool he just comes in with a sword he's just like murder 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 he just kills all of them right away the only part about that part of the plot that i thought was so funny is that jackie chan's character who's gone out of his way not to hurt anyone severely this guy jumps in and just murders everyone he's like all right i guess we're friends now and i'm like yeah "Uh, i just think if it was me i'd be like Buddy, calm down. Why are you killing everyone? So, so you you're saying when that character was later revealed to be a secret bad guy, you were not as surprised? No, not only was I not surprised, I was like, "Come on, come on! You didn't see this coming." <laughs> he just kills everyone. He just kills everyone. There are uh, the the big bad guys, and I'm sorry that that we're not using the actual name of the group. There's so many gangs that show up in these movies, but the main bad guy character. Like you said, he has these factions underneath him, but he's also approached by these three men wearing these big hats, uh, very similar to the hats that we see. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's something that's an easy kind of comparison point. The the, the three uh, god characters in Big Trouble in Little China, but also the three uh, killer characters in the second Lone Wolf and Cub movie. People who know what I'm talking about there will probably be able to picture what they look like. You don't see their faces, their heads, their their entire face is covered by this hat. They are approaching the bad guy saying, we can get rid of this character if you pay us this amount. He refuses, and they say, if we come back later, if you or if you approach us later, the cost is going to be more. I waited the entire movie for these characters to come back, and then with like five minutes left, they do come back. They get this <laughs> massive amount of money to, uh, to kill Jackie Chan's character, and then they all reveal themselves in a really cool way that they have these spears... And and I love I love the kind of of pageantry of how they kind of reveal their spears and take off of all their gear and then they fight and I have to say that that spear fight is one of I mean I think it's the best fight in this entire movie but it's so ahead of its time in terms of what we've been watching like it, it feels like something 
from a decade later in a Jackie Chan movie. It's it's you know three guys all trying to kill him at the same time. Him just playing defensive and trying to not get stabbed while all of these uh these these poles are going everywhere. I just thought it's an incredible high point to this. Do you remember? Movie. I think it's three. I forget which movie it is, but when he's fighting the three Amazonian women, yes, that's what it made me think of. It some sure. of the choreography reminded me of that fight, which is famous. I think it's Armor Armor of the Gods is when he. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. It made me think of that fight scene, and I agree. <laughs> for, oh, for, they, sorry, sorry, Liam. For those who might not be as familiar with these titles, so Armor of God. Oh, that's right, the, Armor of God. But uh, or or. Uh, so if I remember correctly, and we'll we'll get through this when we cover them, Armor of God two was released in the U.S. as Armor of God in the nineties, and then oh, the, the original okay. film was then released as a I think a direct to video sequel in the states, even though the order is actually reversed in terms of when they were actually made. Oh my gosh! Well, I don't know which one it is. He just fights three women, and at one point he punches one of them in the breasts and he's does the classic Jackie Chan. Oh no, I'm embarrassed thing. And she doesn't care and keeps fighting it. It's really fun. Yeah. It's definitely the original armor of God that he fights the Amazon women. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah. Him kind of taking on three people at the same time who are all attacking simultaneously. Yeah. But boy, I just, the the choreography was so good. Acrobatics. Yeah. It's really, really incredible. And it looks actually like, like not actually dangerous. Like you think the spears are sharp, but like you think, well, even if those are just sticks, that's if he does something wrong, he's gonna at minimum twist his ankle, if not break something. Yeah, like right. it's the sort of choreography where you think, "Oh, there are stakes here," even though this is pretend. And that's I think classic Jackie Chan, right? I know this is pretend, but if they pretend wrong, someone's gonna get really fucking hurt. And then exactly. you find out in his later movies, yeah, people got hurt all the time. It was <laughs> constantly getting hurt. You know, he's getting his head squished behind a TV or something. You know what I mean? But uh, but uh, in, in this movie, I also thought. What what I thought was crazy about it is how unbelievably unfair it is. He's yeah. already like fighting someone who might be able to beat him just from his own skills, and then that dude's able to pay some mercenaries to step in the fight. And his mentor is like, "Yeah, I guess you got to do it, buddy. I don't know what to tell you." I love like, it. I love fighting. his mentor is on the sidelines, and people are like, "Oh, should we step in?" And he's like, "No, no, he can handle it." It's just like he almost gets killed like a dozen times. Well, and then his minutes. advice is, "Break the lead spear." The fuck does that even mean? It doesn't even mean anything. What are we talking about? It's not, that's, that's not advice. Um, what I also like about that particular sequence, which comes, again, very, very late in the film, is that Jackie Chan has already been trying to fight the bad guy, the main bad guy in the movie. And all he is doing at that point is he's in this kind of stance that Jackie Chan can't kind of break through. And so it's not that interesting of a fight. Then it leads into what I think is the high point of the entire movie. And then it goes back to that fight, which now at that point, Jackie Chan has learned some stuff. And he then gets thrown a weapon, which is kind of a... Um, <laughs> I didn't realize was going to enter into uh, kind of being the key to, 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 to finishing off the guy. That yeah. Then the fight gets really good. And then, spoiler alert, he beats the bad guy. And as all great kung fu movies do... It fucking ends immediately. We don't get any fallout at all. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's just Oh, the what end. <laughs> literally happens is he kills the leader, and then the leader's whole gang goes, oh, shit, we better run. And they all run away, and that's how the movie ends. <laughs> I love that idea that, like, as long as he was the leader, they're all like, yeah, we're the fucking gang. Gangs, yeah, we're, we are the men. He dies, and instead of going, well, there's still more of us than them, they just fucking cut, cut ass and run. They're just done. They're like, we're, we're through here, and run away. 
Yeah, it also is nice to see Jackie Chan do a little bit of weapon fighting in this. We see them do kind of like improvised weapons in the restaurant scene where we see like um, him using stools and and, and sure. his acrobatics yeah. around the place. But we get to see some brief moments of him using things like swords and and uh, and and spears in this. It's something we'll see a lot more of in the future. Though I do think that when people think of Jackie Chan as a martial artist, they think of him with those improvised weapons as opposed to kind of the yeah. more traditional ones. I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that like part of what made this exciting is that it's not a Jackie Chan movie, which isn't to say I'm not looking forward to more Jackie Chan esque Jackie Chan movies, but I getting to see him in something more traditional kung fu and using traditional Chinese weapons is kind of cool, right? Because it's not what we are familiar with, even though some of those weapons are ridiculous. I mean, the, the weapon he gets thrown is literally metal balls that look like the, the jangle balls you like yeah. work in your hands. To, They're like, Benoit balls. That's what, it, I mean, that's what it looks like, right? And it, it turns out they must be pretty heavy because at one point that guy drops it on someone's foot that's and right. the dude's like fucked up. So you're like, well, how heavy are those little balls? But that's part of what makes this movie so fun, right? Is that it has that weird kung fu movie thing of some of these characters need their own particular weapons that don't make sense like the old man beggars is just a cane with a pointy end but he like kicks ass with it you know what i mean or that dude who's like kind of tough he's beating up most people who faced him he just has metal balls in his hand like it doesn't (laughs) seem that cool at all but it's it must be pretty cool because he beats the crap out of a lot of people with him i mean it's not like he has a flying guillotine that he's throwing (laughs) onto people's heads or something like that i love that flying guillotine one of the things that's usually mentioned in regards to this film, it's the one piece of IMDb trivia about it, is that in that opening sequence where Jackie Chan is doing his little exhibition, that there's some familiar music playing. And that song is called Ice Flow 9 by Pierre Arve, which is most well-known as music that features in the opening credits of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Did you recognize it when you were watching the film, Liam? You know, I didn't. I mean, I... I somewhat did, and then I thought, oh, what is this? I know this. But as far as specifically being like, this is from the Holy Grail, no, I did not. It's, maybe it's because I watched that Monty Python film so much. As a, I mean, look, everyone knows I'm a nerd, so it's not a surprise that that's something I would watch as a teenager. But certainly that, that music is so memorable, and especially because the Monty Python film has all these jokes in the opening credits, like, uh, you know, my sister was bit by a moose, all that sort of stuff, that that I think I connected with that music a little bit more. Also used in the extended version of Dawn of the Dead, which I don't remember its use in that. But for anyone who doesn't know what that music sounds like, let's play a little bit of it here. Yeah, I'm sure some people. You said you just said Dawn of the Dead, and that's the only. It's so funny because that soundtrack is so classic, and I even have it on vinyl. And there's so much amazing music on it. But whenever anyone says music from Dawn of the Dead, my brain just goes. Well, it wasn't that. It was this. Familiar, I'm sure, to some people, and it is. it was kind of amusing to me to hear it, but I don't think this will be the last time that we hear amusing soundtrack pieces in a Jackie Chan movie. We've mentioned already, this is, uh, according to several interviews, and, and actually quoted in his own book, one of Jackie's personal favorites of his own 
films. Uh, and obviously he respected the director since he worked with him again. What did you think of the direction in this film overall? It, it, one of the things I liked about it is there's one of the first sequences takes place during the winter. You can see the, the kind of... Um, the, the cold breath coming out of people's mouths and, and you see the snow in the background. I thought that was kind of unique and it gave kind of a uh, a fun kind of spin on the, the Kung Fu that takes place there. But there's also some pretty kind of unique visuals, people walking across kind of desolate areas in the film that I think are really notable. There's a lot of very traditional looking uh, sequences that take place, you know, wh- whether it be at the restaurant, whether it be in these kind of ornate houses that we see in so many of these martial arts films. What did you think of the visual style of the film? Oh, I I don't know that you could say the whole thing looks this way, but parts of this movie look really impressive. Like they are yeah. memorable images. And I don't think I could say that honestly about any of the Jackie Chan movies we've watched to this point. That there is there's again, it's not the whole movie. There are definitely parts that maybe feel a little rough, but there's a couple of shots of this movie and I think couple of is even underestimating it there's there's a surprising amount of shots of this movie that are kind of iconic looking like they like like you could post a still of it and it would be an impressive visual and I thought that really set it apart from maybe not just other Jackie Chan movies we've covered but even a lot of other movies at this time where sometimes the visuals exist only to communicate the action, which is fine. I love that. I, I I would prefer a camera angle that helps me see these people fake fighting each other. But the idea that there's a few times when he does something more with his camera really was special to me. I did like how in the uh, – there's a couple of sequences that take place in like a town and there's some crane shots that it starts off with. I mean, these are just little things, but they're little things that we don't see in a lot of the movies that we covered so far. I do want to mention that there is one little sequence in the restaurant where the entire thing is out of focus, which I thought was kind of unusual, where it's like the whole yeah. – the movie just goes completely out of focus. Well, but it was kind of an essential part to include. Just to, just one of those things where you can't have playback on set to see if things worked out or not. I know. I always think about that, how it's easy today to think like, well, everything should look great. And it's like, well, at the time, it was actually kind of hard to know if things were right or not. <laughs> so I guess to finish off our conversation on this film, Liam, and I say this film because for some reason in my brain, when it comes to Snake and Crane, Arthur Shaolin, uh, I always – it's not that I confuse it with Snake and the Eagle's Shadow, but I have to go through it in my brain. Snake and Crane, Arts of Shaolin. I need to remember the title. Not as memorable as some that we've already covered even. How close are we in this film to quote-unquote classic Jackie Chan? Like the character that we are most familiar with from things like Drunken Master, from really kind of the the his, his – I would say his peak period from uh, – from Snake in the Eagle's Shadow until Drunken Master 2 or beyond that, maybe mid-90s, late-90s. How close are we to that Jackie Chan character? I mean, we're still a distance from it, but that's part of the appeal, right? Like, the thesis of this podcast was not going to be all the Jackie Chan films we already know we like are good and everything (laughs) else is bad. I'm so happy that this is not what I would call prime Jackie Chan. And yet it's entirely entertaining top to bottom. That's an accomplishment. That's sort of what the goal was of this show uh, to some extent. Um, But I do think a lot of what would become his style and his brand, at least in his funny movies, it's important to say 
I think we tend to focus on him as a humorist. He mm-hmm. did some movies that weren't funny that are still pretty good. So, and we'll yeah. talk about those when we get there. But as far as that classic humorous Jackie Chan, there's some real DNA of that in this movie. And I, and I love that. I love that that's present. Well, I guess that kind of leads to an, a follow-up question, which is, could Jackie have found martial arts stardom as this sort of character, as almost like a Jimmy Wang Yu-ish character, as opposed to the comedic one that he kind of developed later? Uh, I only say no because he said in writing about the movie that he still didn't get to do all the things he wanted. That this right. was, for the time, this was his dream project. But he also talks about being creatively frustrated by Lo Wei. And so my feeling is he was always going to do more. Uh, and, and who knows, maybe there uh, would have been room for him to do stuff like this that wasn't quite the style he would get to later. Um, and it would have been cool. But I really think he had an idea pretty early on of the sorts of things he wanted to be doing. And this is not entirely that. That was our conversation on Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin from 1978. As I said at the beginning, I was so glad that we had gotten to a point, I felt in my mind, Liam, that I was kind of counting down the films until we got to Snake and the Eagle's Shadow because I was hoping that, you know, that would be a breakthrough point, not just for Jackie Chan, but for your enjoyment. I was so happy to find a movie that we both enjoyed a lot on that journey. And again, almost maybe the biggest shock of the series so far was encountering this movie and realizing that it really does stack up to some of the better martial arts movies of that period. Yeah, I mean, it, to some extent, I'm, I wouldn't say annoyed, but frustrated that this movie hasn't gotten more shine but then again you know i don't know how vibrant the current conversation is on martial arts movies anyway but if you are a fan of of jackie chan and martial arts in general not just his his movies that are more his movies i i highly recommend this this was a lot of fun and i it it was a joy to finally get to some material that i felt i could unapologetically celebrate and say this is great uh if you're looking for the best current version of this film. I believe it is uh, through 88 films. I, you would require, I think, a all-region uh, Blu-ray player to play their disc of it, but um, it, it's by far the best-looking print version that currently exists out there and has a lot of special features as well. I like how they've been releasing a lot of these low-way-era Jackie Chan movies, and I think it's a good opportunity to kind of reevaluate their quality. But Liam, continuing our chronological look at the career of Jackie Chan... On the next episode of We Do Our Own Stunts, what are we looking at? Well, Douglas, we're going to be looking at (laughs) another Low Way film. This one directed by Low Way, 1978's Magnificent Bodyguards. I'll tell you what, Doug, if it's not as good as this movie, they'll be hell to pay. They'll be hell to pay, and you'll be so angry that you may quit the podcast entirely right before Jackie Chan's breakout role Uh, (laughs) do you know anything at all about magnificent bodyguards not a thing i mean literally the oldest movie of his i've seen is the breakout movie oh that interest so so yeah so you had not seen any of the movies that we've covered so far on this. not a single one well um one notable thing liam about magnificent bodyguards is that it was the first movie in hong kong to be filmed in 3d 
Whoa. So you're going to get us a 3D copy? I've actually already been looking to see if there's an uh, anaglyph, I guess they call it, version that we could watch. Uh, and sure. I'll see if, if that's possible. But it is something that we'll have to keep in mind when we do watch 1978's Magnificent Bodyguards on the next episode of We Do Our Own Stunts. Liam, if you want to check out more episodes of We Do Our Own Stunts or all the latest Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, if they head over to Cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, they can get the latest episodes from us here uh, on this show, but also a whole family of shows, as well as some great writing. They can check out the Patreon, where they can financially support the network. They can check out the store and maybe get a t-shirt. There's all kinds of stuff to check out over at Cinepunks.com. They can also dive into our archive. We've done a lot of shows now covering a lot of different topics over at Cinemasmorgasbord.com. If they have any questions or concerns, they can, of course, hit us up on social media at CinemaSmorg on Twitter or send us an email, info at CinemaSmorgasport.com. They can also find Cinepunks on social media, C-I-N-A-P-U-N-X, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And that's where you get our latest news. Maybe share some ideas. Maybe let us know about your ideas for podcasts. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll be interested or maybe we'll tell you to, you know, kick bricks, whatever it is. Yeah, all right. Hit the road, Buster. You can also find Liam on Twitter, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And you can find me on there as well. It's Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And if you would like, we would certainly appreciate it if you were to give us a review on your podcast provider of choice. We always appreciate those, especially if they're positive. But, you know, tell us your thoughts. Tell us what we can improve. And like Liam said, hey, Cinema Smorgasbord is always launching new podcasts. If you have an idea that we should be doing, let us know through our social media or through the website. And, hey, we'll get right on that. Right, Liam? Again, if it's a good idea, yes. If it's not, (laughs) you can kick bricks. Requiring a good idea certainly never stopped us in the past. That's fair. (laughs) That is very fair. I mean, I was thinking, like, we should do a uh, – Back to front, like we did John Singleton of Cynthia Rothrock's career, oh just God. to like compare. Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting. Well, that would be a time-consuming project, but yes. something to think about for the future. Uh, and actually, I guess that's a, a little hint at an upcoming Cinepunks episode. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think I said. Oh, I don't know if I. No, I guess I didn't say that on the show. No, you didn't say. But that on the show. we're we're covering um, on the next Cinepunks. We're talking about uh, yes, madam. And uh, sworn to justice, uh, literally unintentionally doing the thing I just suggested as a joke, comparing <laughs> earlier earlier Cynthia Rothrock to later Cynthia Rothrock, and realizing there's a definite quality gap therein. <laughs> well, you can check that out over at Cinepunks.com. But for now, Liam, we need to take a little break. We're going to be back once again in the very near future with 1978's Magnificent Bodyguards. Good night, everyone. Night night. Are you ready? Action! Camera! All right! 